Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Look at Acts chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 20. The Lord's power always supersedes Satan. Do we believe that? I mean, think about that. The Lord's power, the Lord himself, who he is, always supersedes Satan. We have, uh, in effect, three enemies, right? We've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So one of those enemies is our flesh. It's not getting better. It can't be cleaned up. <laughs> That's why it's dying to self. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, Maslowian theory here. It's not getting better. Our flesh, praise God, one day when we get a new body is going to be done away with completely, permanently, and we'll be able to walk with the Lord in total purity because sin will no longer be a part of the fabric of who we are. But in the midst of that, we have an enemy, Satan. And we know that he's a roaring lion. We know that he seeks to devour all those different things. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians, right? We are in a war, a spiritual battle. Praise God, Satan's defeated. And as believers, every moment of every day, we get to walk in the Lord's power, in the Lord's strength, because the Lord's power, who he is, always supersedes Satan's power. Paul runs into this. He's in Ephesus, and he's been sharing Christ. We looked at last week how he came across the disciples of John, and then he goes on to Ephesus, begins to teach them for three months in the synagogue. He goes on to the school of Tyrannus. He spends about two years there. And this is kind of an aside. This is a filler, if you will. Luke puts in some of the details of his time in Ephesus. One of the great truths of Scripture in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, relates directly to this story that we have from Luke in Acts 19. He says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who's he talking about? Christ dwells in us. Greater is Christ who dwells within us, who has made his home within our hearts, than Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air in the world. Greater is he, greater is Christ, than Satan. Praise the Lord for that truth. Three things this morning as we look at this. Miraculous evidence. A magnificent name. We sang about that this morning. And a mighty word. I love this. Oh, the word of God continued to grow with strength and power. Because people were submitting to the Lord and the Lord was working in their lives. And their lives were being transformed as a result of it. So in verse 11, he says this, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now that's a mouthful. There's a lot in this. I don't want you to miss the very first phrase. God was performing extraordinary miracles. He doesn't say Paul was performing extraordinary miracles. Do you catch that? God was performing extraordinary miracles. Performing is doing. 
And it was an imperfect tense. It has the idea that he began at one point and he continued doing this. There was a series of events here. There was a series of miracles. Miracles means uh, divine, powerful abilities. God is able in everything that he does. Nothing taxes his strength. He is all strength. And here we find that through the Apostle Paul, because that's the word by, through the hands of Paul, by the means of his servant, by the means of the vessel called Paul, God was doing extraordinary, powerful works. Now why? I think it's a fascinating question. You know, Ephesus was a center of the occult. They worshiped Satan in all kinds of different ways. They had all kinds of magicians and sorcerers. We're not talking about the fun guys to watch that pulls bunnies out of the hat, right? We're talking about people who literally were a part of the occult. They were part of the demonic forces. They were constantly trying to curse other people. They were tr- constantly trying to use enchant- enchantments and, and magic, black magic, if you will, the arts in order to control their environment and control other people and to make their lives better. It's the center of the occult And so the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, in the midst of the teaching of the Word of God, was establishing the authority of the Word of God by doing miraculous things through the Apostle Paul. Look what he says, that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. Paul would pray over a a handkerchief or an apron, they would take that to the sick, and the sick was healed. The sick individual was healed. Or even diseases, perhaps that had been there for a long period of time. People were being healed of it. Evil spirits, people who were indwelt by a demon. The demons were being cast out. God was establishing the word, the authority of the Apostle Paul, the authority of the gospel of God's grace. And that's why he was doing these miracles. Warren Wiersbe says this, God enabled Paul to perform special miracles because Ephesus was a center for the occult and Paul was demonstrating God's power right in Satan's territory. (laughs) I like that, don't you? It's kind of like, hey, remember how the Lord in Revelation to one of the messages of the churches says, the deep things of Satan or so they're called, so they're called. As if somehow the things of Satan supersede the things of God. No, no. The things of God supersede the things of Satan. I think if you go back and you look at the different miracles that were taking place by the hands of the apostles, by certainly Paul and Peter, Stephen was a part of this, Philip was a part of this. If you look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 43... There's an establishing here. This is a transitional time in the early church. The church has begun. It began at Pentecost. And now we have the establishing of the authority of the church. The the apostles, certainly the establishing of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Acts chapter 2 verse 43, we see all all along that God is doing miraculous things 
through the apostles, through the leaders of the church. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Wonders and signs, miracles, things that couldn't be explained naturally. They were things that God intervened into the midst of in order to establish his power and who he is. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 and verses 15 through 16, right after Ananias and Sapphira had been killed because they lied to the Holy Spirit, says this, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. In verse 15, it says, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out onto the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. The Lord has this period of time where he's establishing the body of Christ. He's establishing the apostles, the leaders of the church. He's establishing the gospel of grace, and he's making it very clear to the people that he supersedes Satan. They can deal with the occult, they can deal with incantations, they can deal with magic. They can think that they're in control and they can use demonic forces in order to continue that thought process. But the reality of it is, the Lord always supersedes Satan. In Samaria, Philip, one of the early forerunners of the deacons, in Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. He began preaching Christ. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Fascinating. God, through them, was doing a tremendous work. And in Samaria, even Simon, who was a socer, who was an individual that dabbled in the occult, Even Simon himself believed. He recognized the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. (laughs) Fascinating. In Acts chapter 14, verse 3, and we could go to many different passages on this. Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey end up in Iconium. And in Acts 14, 3, it says, therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting, giving that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Now, why did, why did he do that? I would suggest that there's three main reasons that the Lord granted for signs and wonders. The word sign and wonder itself, these two individual words, have the idea that what took place wasn't actually the most important thing. The reason the sign or the wonder took place is to point to the one who was able to do the sign and the wonder. The sign and the wonder was literally just a sign. It was a road sign. It was to point to the Lord himself. God was doing these miracles through the apostles and through the leaders of the early church in order to point to himself, to point to his sufficiency, his power to save, his power to transform lives, to rescue people out of the bondage of sin, 
to bring them into the kingdom of God, to make them a part of his family. Three simple reasons. First, to affirm the gospel message. Salvation in Christ alone. The Lord has the authority alone to save, to forgive sins. So in the doing of these signs and wonders and these great and mighty miracles, there's an affirmation of the gospel message. Secondly, to establish the superiority of the Lord. Many of these people were steeped in the occult, fear, bondage, no hope without God. And the Lord accomplishes these miracles in order to free them from diseases, in order that evil spirits would be cast out from them, in order that they would recognize that the Lord has the authority to save, that he is superior to Satan, to alleviate the suffering of the sick and the afflicted. Beautiful. Miraculous evidence. I I believe that God is a miracle-working God. I believe God is able. I believe that he's strong. I believe that he can change us. I believe that he has the power and the authority to save us and to forgive us of sin. I believe that when we surrender and walk with him day by day by his grace, that he's able to grow us and mature us in Christ. And that all around us, there may be spiritual war taking place, but we keep our eyes fixed upon him. And we know greater is he that is in us than he dwells on this earth that is in the world. We don't have to fear Satan. James says, submit to the Lord and Satan may flee from you. Maybe Satan will decide to just take off. No, he says he will flee from you. Why? Because darkness cannot be where light is. Look, when we walk as children of light, when we walk in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, when we're empowered by the Lord, when we're being transformed by the Lord, when his joy and his peace and his hope and all the different aspects of who the Lord is is being seen in and through our lives, then we are lights in this world. And the darkness takes note, takes note. Miraculous evidence, but a magnificent name. I I think this is a weird story. Can I put it that way? I mean, I, sorry, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but it's one of those stories that you look at and you go, what were these guys thinking? And what in the world does this mean? The sons of Sceva. (laughs) Verse 13, he says, also some of the Jewish exorcists, they, they did have Jewish exorcists. They would walk around, they'd go around to the different places. I'm sure they would uh, ask for money in order to cast out evil spirits from people that were afflicted in this way. Some of these Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. Now catch what's going on here. The Lord, through the Apostle Paul, is doing just amazing, miraculous miracles. Powerful deeds. People are being healed of diseases. People that do have evil spirits, the evil spirits are are being cast out of them. And we know Paul, we know the context. He's doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not doing it in his name. He's doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can go to all kinds of passages for that. We saw it in Philippi with the demon-possessed girl. 
But these Jewish exorcists were attempting to use the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to cast out evil spirits from people who were afflicted in this way. And this is what they were saying. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. (laughs) I adjure you. We command you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And that's an interesting one, isn't it? In other words, they're trying to manipulate the Lord. They're trying to use his magnificent name as if they know the Lord, as if they're known by the Lord, as if they're believers in the Lord. They're not believers in the Lord. They don't know the Lord from a hole in the wall. What they've seen is that Paul is using the name of the Lord in order to cast out these demons, and so they want to get in on the action. They recognize there's something going on there. Paul's being effective. And so they want to take it and borrow it and use it for their own benefit. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So verse 14, it says, Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Now evidently, we don't get the full story here, but they were at somebody's home. There was somebody who was uh, demonically possessed or indwelt. And they're at the house, and these seven sons are all there. And they're trying to impose on this demon the power of Jesus' name. (laughs) I don't know if we ought to laugh about this or not, but it it really is kind of strange. Verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said to them, now that's strange in and of itself. They're evidently talking to this guy. He's indwelt by this demon, and the demon's talking back to him. I don't know. That sounds Hollywood movie moment, you know? But that's what's happening. What does he say, this demon? I recognize Jesus. Huh. And I know about Paul. That's interesting. But who are you? In other words, these guys didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. These guys are trying to manipulate the Lord as if he's a magical incantation. See, what magic and what the occult is doing here in Ephesus is they're trying to figure out the right incantation or the right spell in order to manipulate and use magic in order to impose their authority or their will on other people and or their circumstances. That's what magic does. It uses the demon forces in order to try to accomplish that. That's what the occult is all about. In effect, it's the worship of demons. And here these guys see Paul and they see what God's doing through the apostle and they want a piece of that action. They want to try to get this because it's going to benefit them. But the problem is they don't have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, they're using the Lord as if he could be manipulated. As if they had the right, by just saying the right incantation and the right words, to get God to do what they want him to do. And it ain't going to work. The demon, in effect, is mocking them. Jesus, I recognize. Paul, I know about. But who 
are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, seven of them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Everybody saw this. <laughs> I mean, here they come. Oh, those are the sons of Sceva. What happened to them? And why in the world are they not dressed? Can you imagine their dad? Boys, what's going on? I mean, crazy. What's the result? This became known to all. You think? They didn't have text messages. Can you imagine today? Everybody with their iPhone. What is that? You know, it'd go viral instantaneously. We'd have 10 million hits throughout the entire world. I mean, it's crazy. Everybody finds out about this, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Now, what what do we, what? God cannot be manipulated. Paul was doing what he was doing by the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord was doing this through the apostle Paul. We can't treat God as if somehow he's at our disposal to do whatever we want whenever we want him to do it. We submit to the Lord. We yield to the Lord. And we follow the Lord because the Lord chooses when and how to do what he wants to do. And the reason this was so important was just like in Philippi. If these individuals could have manipulated God as if he could be manipulated, but if they could have used the name of Jesus in this way, it would have given the idea to all of those who are steeped in the occult that they, all they had to do was figure out the magical incantation, the spell, in order to get God to do what they wanted him to do. In other words, that God, or Jesus, was just like all the other demons that they thought that they were controlling and manipulating in order to accomplish the things that they wanted to accomplish. And so Jesus would have been lowered and put on the level of all the other demonic forces. And the Lord clearly was not going to be manipulated in that way. I think it's important to understand that the Lord's power supersedes Satan all the time. There's never a moment where that's not true. Somehow we get this idea from our culture and all the different things that wickedness, even though it seems to be increasing, is going to win the day. It is not going to win the day, folks. We know the end, and we know who's the victor in the midst of it. And we have the privilege of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, whose power supersedes all the forces of darkness in this world Period. There is no one greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the midst of Ephesus, where all this focus on the occult takes place, the Lord is revealing, through the Apostle Paul, his supremacy. And he's also making it very clear 
to all of those who are trying to use, just like Simon wanted to do it earlier in Samaria, or just like uh, the girl possessed uh, by the demon who was following Paul and Barnabas through the streets of Philippi, saying, these are servants of the Most High God. God, do what they say. In the same manner, these sons of Sceva are trying to manipulate something, control something, and the the Lord's not going to give in to that. I think it's interesting how Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 tells the Ephesian believers. This was so prevalent in Ephesus. Finally be strong in verse 10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Catch it? It's not our strength. It's not our capability. It's not our divine power. It's his. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, his ability. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then he begins to walk through the armor of God, which I believe is simply the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we yield to the Lord Jesus Christ, the helmet's in place. The breastplate of righteousness is there. We're we're girded with the belt of truth. We're ready. We don't leave pieces of the armor around. Oh, I forgot it at home. I got to run back and go get it. No. Surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are clothed in Christ. He is our armor. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's what Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers. Why? Because Ephesus was the center of the occult and they needed to be reminded over and over and over and over again. That the Lord's power supersedes Satan all the time. There's never a moment where that's not true. What happens? The people fear the Lord. The Lord's name is magnified, means to be made great. They recognize that the Lord is superior, superior to the satanic first, uh, forces. First John Chapter 5, verse 18, he says, We know that no one who is born of God sins. Now, some people twist that into the idea that when you become a Christian, you never trip and stumble. Nonsense. 1 John 1, 9 has already made that clear. Contextually, 1 John 5, 18, I think, if I'm correct, comes after 1 John 1, 9. Am I right in that? You got that? So he's not saying that Christians never sin. That's a heresy. In fact, he deals with that earlier. He says, if you say you have no sin, the love of God is not in you. Christians understand that there is a spiritual war, and we understand that our flesh wars against the spirit. We have even a heightened awareness of sin. But here what he's saying is practices sin. And I think contextually what he's saying is if we trip and stumble... Or if we are constantly finding ourselves tripping and stumbling in a particular way, that God in us will lead us to confession. The Lord in us will desire to convict us of that sin because he lives within us. You can't do sin and call it good as a believer. That's very clear from 1 John. But he who was born of God keeps him. 
This is fascinating. He who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not do what? Touch him. Touch him. If you're a believer, God lives in you. God is holding on to you. And what does he say right here? The evil one does not touch him. That word touch actually means handle, link to. Why? Because where light is, darkness cannot reside. Man, what a blessing to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is superior, that the Lord is greater. That even though we're in a spiritual war and even though we recognize that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that we do wrestle against Satan and the demonic forces, we recognize that we have one who lives within us who is greater and is protecting us and guarding us and watching over us to the point where Satan cannot even handle us. Praise God. Well, it goes on in verse 18. And there's a mighty word. This is kind of what's going on in Ephesus. He's been teaching in the school of Tyrannus. God is doing tremendous miracles through him. In verse 18, he says, Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. Now this is an interesting one. Many also of those who had believed. In other words, they were saved. They had already believed in Christ. They had come to the realization that they were in need of the salvation that is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And they had believed. They were persuaded that that was true and they had received the Lord Jesus Christ. They were part of the kingdom of God. They were part of the family of God. And what were they doing? It says they were kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, what they were doing. So they were saved, and now as a result of being saved, of Christ coming to live within them, the Holy Spirit coming to live in them, they were beginning to recognize something wrong about their lives, and they were confessing, and they were disclosing, they were bringing out into the open those things which were taking part in their lives that did not reflect their new identity in Christ Jesus. Verse 19 gives us an idea of what that looks like. Many of those who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. We don't know exactly how much 50,000 pieces of silver was worth, but boy, does it sound good. I mean, anybody want 50,000 pieces of silver right now? I'd take it. That's a lot of money. Right? One person guessed that it was about 120 individuals working the entire year, taking all their wages and putting that together, and that would be approximately 50,000 pieces of silver. Who knows? We don't know. But what were they doing? They had gotten saved. They were now confessing and disclosing their practices. What were their practices? They were still practicing magic. What? Believers practicing magic? Have you heard the fancy word sanctification? Right? Sanctification is a simple word which means becoming holy. Right? We're saved in Christ. We come to the cross. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's called justification. Just as if we had never sinned, the Lord paid the debt for us. 
by going to the cross, shedding his blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins. We're justified before the Father through the Son. We're made right with God. We become believers. Now we enter into a walk. And you can see this in the letter of Ephesians. Remember we walked through that a couple years ago, right? And you got chapters 1 through 3. They're all about who you are in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. Done deal. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now in Christ. That's a finished, done deal. Sealed, signed, delivered. The Holy Spirit's given as a pledge of that great salvation that he's accomplished for us. Hit chapter 4, what does he say? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So we're in Christ, but now we have a walk. And that walk is called sanctification. That walk is about us becoming what God has already declared us to be. You catch it? Fancy word, sanctification, becoming holy. What God is doing in our lives as we yield to him, And we are becoming something that only God can enable within our lives. We are being transformed, metamorphosized by God himself as we choose to yield our way and our lives to him. We are becoming what he has already declared us to be. See, I think it's fascinating because here are these believers. It's very clear they're believers. But they're babies. They haven't yet gotten to the point where they are ready to get rid of the things that make them comfortable. And they're still dabbling in the occult. They're still dabbling in magic. But clearly, through the leading of the Holy Spirit who now lives within them, and through the teaching of the Apostle Paul as he's teaching them at the school of Tyrannus, and as they're listening to the Word of God, and they're listening to who they are in Christ, and now what they should be doing by yielding their lives to Christ because of what God has declared them to be. God is convicting them of sin and they're responding and they're saying, oh, that's not from my father and I don't want anything more to do with it. And so they bring their books, which is a massive amount, and as a testimony on the exterior of what God is doing on the interior, they light these books up and all of Ephesus watches how some people who are babes in Christ, who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ, begin to grow in Christ and begin to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they have been called. And they begin to yield each and every area of their lives to the Lord. And they show it by burning these books. Number one, how patient should we be with people? They come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and it seems like in our world today, in our Christian circles, we immediately expect them to be mature saints, super saints, right? They're saved the next day. You better go out and win everybody to Christ. Or get rid of all those sins in your life. That's not how God wants you to live. What are you thinking? And by the way, the doors of the church are open every day. So come on in. I mean, we can can go through this over and over and over again. It's indescribable how we impose things on people. Rather than pointing them to Christ who now lives within them. Who will begin to work in their lives. Convict them of sin. 
How can we come alongside of people who are babes in Christ and point them to Christ and the sufficiency of the Lord and accept them for where they're at and trust the Lord to convict them, to grow them, to transform them because only he can. Secondly, how many of us are still dabbling? We're still dabbling in the things that make us comfortable. We've been called into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has come to dwell within us. And we should be seeing God transform us as we yield our lives to him afresh, as we get into the word of God, as God begins to transform and renew us, our thinking. How many of us are still dabbling in the things that we're comfortable with? We excuse them. We put it off as if somehow it's no big deal. We act as if, well, (laughs) it's really not that important. And it's still got a hold on us because it's our safe zone. It's our comfort zone. Anything like that in your life? Because I guarantee you one thing. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes to live in your life, you are now his child. And if there's anything in your life that is not pleasing or acceptable to him, that you're clinging to for all your worth as if it's a priority, as if it's essential, then the Lord Jesus Christ, as your loving heavenly Father, will begin to discipline you because he knows that that's not what's best for you, for me. Are we still dabbling in stuff? Or are we growing in Christ? Are we maturing? Are we moving from babyhood out of diapers to where we begin to learn to crawl, we begin to learn to walk, we begin to stumble about and our loving Heavenly Father watches over us. He knows what we can take, when we can take it, how much we can take. He knows what will destroy us and he's constantly keeping us and guarding us and watching over us even as a parent does with with a small child. And in the midst of it, he's constantly beginning to work in our lives in order to grow us in him, to transform us, to renew us. And we begin to walk. We get to the teenage years and maybe we're a little bit angry with God and say, well, I got this. I can take care of this. And the Lord has to come alongside and lovingly and gently and kindly begin to correct us and admonish us and encourage us because he loves us. And we begin to go on into maturity in Christ to the point where we begin to realize, oh, Lord, thank you for your discipline. Thank you for what you're doing in my life because I want to know you more and because I realize that all of life is really about you. So are we growing in that? Are we still dabbling in the things of the world as if they're more important? as if we can control by using those things. Our environment, our circumstances, the people that are around us. What's God doing in your life? Is there anything that you're attached to 
that as Corey Ten Boom said, I've learned not to hold something too tightly because it really hurts when the Lord, when the Father, has to pry my fingers off of it. Anything like that, give it to the Lord. Yield it to Christ because he alone is able to grow us because his power supersedes the things of this world, supersedes our flesh, our sin, supersedes Satan himself. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.